Well, hello, dealmakers, and welcome to the show where it's all about financial freedom with real estate. One of the things here I, I hear a lot is how do I raise more capital? Now, in the beginning, you're going to raise capital through friends and family, and then maybe you're going to start networking, right? And at one point, though, you may raise 100000 or 200000 or even $500,000, and at one point, you kind of feel like you're tapping out your network. You ask your question, I just raised 200, 500,000, whatever dollars. How do I add a zero next to that? I just spoke to 100 investors and barely managed to raise that much money. How in the world do I now speak to 1,000 investors to raise $5 million? And this is a common question that I get typically from syndicators who have done a few deals. Sometimes I get the questioning from people who are trying to be more proactive and say, hey, I want to go big on this thing. I don't want to just raise $100,000. I want to go boom. I want to go big. And for those people, this episode is going to be for you is how do you really scale your capital raising business? And that's what we're going to talk about today. Our guest is Jonathan Barr. And Jonathan Barr got started in the family business. Uh, and that family business was actually a house flipping business. And he was the acquisitions guy. So he learned a bunch of stuff around acquiring properties and, and checklists and systems and that nature. But he wasn't really out on his own until a few years ago when he and his brother kind of started buying stuff on the side and really discovered cash flowing properties outside the area. They were, they were in, in LA and flipping houses. And uh, of course, the cash flow there is not very strong. The idea of going outside the area was, of course, not even in their sphere of reality. Uh, so he had to overcome that. And then once he got into multifamily, they struggled to really raise the capital for that. And we're talking about that uh, on the episode. I mean, barely the first deal he did barely closed. And it kind of shocked him. They, they thought it'd be easier to raise money, especially when you're in LA. And they discovered it was actually harder to do uh, than, they, than they thought. And more importantly is if you're trying to scale a multifamily uh, portfolio, how do you do that, right? How do you go beyond your friends and family and your network and one-on-one -on -one networking? The answer, of course, is you go online. You build an online thought leadership platform. And that's exactly what Jonathan did. And so we want to get into all that stuff. How did he transition to his first deal? And, and more importantly, how did he then overcome his inability to raise money? And how is he now doing that? How is he able to scale that? And you went from zero to raising $500,000 online, essentially, and he thinks he can do three to four million in the next few months. So how did he do that? We're going to get into that in the show. Let's get right into the interview with Jonathan Barr. Here we go. You're listening to the Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing podcast, hosted by Garrett Lynch and Michael Blanc, where we talk all about how you can achieve financial independence through apartment building investing. Whether you're just getting started or you want to scale your syndication business, this is the show for you. Jonathan, how's it going today? It's going great. How are you, Michael? I'm doing fantastic. I want to dig into your story here because you and your brother have been investing together for a little, little while in real estate. Tell us a bit more about how you guys got started investing in real estate. Yeah, so we grew up in a real estate family, so it's kind of in our blood. Graduated college in 2008 couldn't find a job. And my mom was like, come work for us. It's it basically a flip business in Los Angeles where we did flips on a pretty massive scale. We're buying seven, eight homes a month. At one point, we did about 400 deals in, in 10 years. I bought some duplexes that I held uh, my own. We had a little portfolio in, in Los Angeles that I leased and managed myself. So I've kind of been in the trenches. And we also did some development in Los Angeles where we did townhouse, ground up construction close to downtown LA, which is very challenging and a whole another business. And so I sold those few duplexes 
in the last year or two and been 1031-ing them into deals in the Midwest, specifically Kansas City and Oklahoma City. And we we're about to close on our second deal now in Oklahoma City, but it's our third multifamily deal in the yeah, Midwest. That's, that's all. What was it like to work uh, in your family business? It definitely has its pluses and minuses. The, the plus is you have ultimate support. You have people that are there for you. They're your family. And there's trust like no trust you could ever have with anyone else, right? And the downside is it is difficult to work for your parents where there's kind of still that kind of hierarchical kind of approach to things where, you know, I'm your mom, you need to listen to me. And so that that's challenging for sure. And that, that's probably kind of part of the reason why we left to do our own thing with my brother. It's different. We've always just got along um, and we're pretty open with each other. And, you know, you're kind of a equal footing. You're, you're kind of more equal. So, so it works a little better because of that. So it sounds like you were, so what was your role in the, in the company business? I know you guys flipped a lot of houses, but what, what did you do? Acquisitions. Acquisitions. Looking for deals? Yeah. Yeah. Looking for deals as off market and interesting. We, we bought a house every single possible way you could think of buying a house because we're a small business. Obviously my hand is kind of in everything because you kind of have to help out on certain things. Mm-hmm. at different times just to kind of keep it going. What, what what are some of the things that you learned in the single family house acquisitions that, that translated to multifamily? Just doing due diligence and having checklists and making sure to also talk about it with your team members and bounce ideas off each other to come to the best result and and not miss anything. Because if you have a thorough checklist that has everything that's supposed to be there and every issue you've encountered the likelihood of, of making a mistake is, is pretty minimal. Yeah, so you guys must have used a lot of checklists because you were doing such such volume. You probably had checklists for everything. Yeah, we had checklists for checklists practically. <laughs> yeah. So you and your brother were doing this for your family business, but it sounded like you were st- started to invest a little bit outside the family business. You mentioned some du- couple of duplexes you you were doing. These are buy and holds that you did. or t- talk, yeah. talk about how you were starting to you know do stuff outside the family business. I mean, I, you know, I was making a salary there and some bonuses and all the money that I saved up, I just put into a small property that I own myself in good parts of LA where we're buying that over a 10 year period appreciated 400%. And I started looking at the numbers and I was like, okay, cash on cash, I'm, I'm crushing it because I put not a lot of money into these deals. But if I look at the actual equity that I have on these properties, I was making probably three, 4%. I went to Kansas City because my wife has family there. I started looking at property, talking to brokers, looking at property, and I started looking at the numbers. I was like, holy crap, I could more than triple my cash flow just by moving my money into what, and I bought it. It was already turnkey. It was fully leased. There was management in place. So it was just, it was an easy deal. Um, and it's been performing really well for me and beating projections by 18%. Um, and I'm getting close to 12% cash on cash on, on that deal. That yeah, that, that amazed me when we started uh, buying stuff in, <laughs> in Memphis. Like uh, Memphis was like, yeah. you know, it's not it's a very, not a very exciting growth market, but the cash flow in these, especially yeah. like the, the residential, even the multifamily were just, it was staggering to me. So you, you, you guys started looking at real estate in Kansas City and you were blown away by it. And then how did you, how did you start branching out? Did you get right into multifamily? Did you, did you then start buying a few duplexes in Kansas City or what did you do first? 
Yeah. So I, the few duplexes I bought in LA, I bought like when I first got going in the business and held them for a long time. And then, yeah, I left the family business, got right into multifamily, bought that one building to kind of be like, okay, this, this works. It, it It's working. I, I could actually, cause that was a big hurdle too, is to go outside of Los Angeles because, you know, I've only been used to being able to drive to my properties and not being able to drive to my properties. It was a weird concept for me that it took me a while to get over that uh, mental block of, of actually doing that, I guess you could Let's say. Let's talk about that because I, I hear that a lot is, is the idea of, of investing outside your backyard, especially if you're on one of the coasts, you know, east, west coast and, you know, the idea of, of, of investing something out of the area. How did you, I mean, what, what was your mental block around that? And then how did you finally overcome it? Well, I think my my mental block was that here in LA we basically managed everything ourselves and didn't didn't have a manager, didn't have this. We we did have, dealt with tenants ourselves. So giving that responsibility and feeling comfortable with giving it to someone else was was a huge thing, but finally felt like I had no choice if I really wanted to grow in my investment life, I, I needed to, you know, kind of put the roles in someone else's hands and trust them and and have faith in them and, and have, and, and that's, I, I think that's the most important thing is just having the right team members that are responsible, that, that will perform, that you pay them well so that they're motivated to perform well for you. And, and if you have the right systems in place and reporting and all that, then, and with technology, how it is today, then you could be quite effective. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is, it is about the yeah. team members. Why did you switch to multifamily and, and how did you make that switch? Like, what did you do? So, you know, as in the flip world, especially in Los Angeles, especially in the areas that we're working and we we're more designed for. So, I mean, it, we could easily make 100K on a deal, but after you take overhead and employees and office and and what you pay on ordinary income for that for taxes, there's, there's just not a whole lot left. And then you got to keep on finding the next deal, the next deal, the next deal. With multifamily, it's very tax efficient. And you could buy, you know, a handful of multifamily deals and probably not have to do another deal again in your life if you don't really want to. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Now, now nevertheless, it sounded like you had some pretty good real estate experience getting into this stuff. But I think you 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 joined our mentoring program and it was literally in April yep. of 2020. The height of COVID. Yep. I mean, first of all, why yep. did you do that in general? Like, you know, someone like your, you know, someone with some kind of background, why did you feel you needed mentoring? And then more importantly, why the heck did you start right then and there? You know, arguably the worst time in history to, to get into uh, multifamily. Yeah. I mean, that was more of a timing thing. I left my family business in January, 2020 to kind of go off on, on my own and then COVID happened. So that was just, I guess you can call it bad timing, but whatever it is. And as for the mentorship, you know, in the business we were in before we had our our parents there my mother that you know was amazing mentor that was there every step of the way if i encountered difficult situations that i didn't know what to do with i just went to her so so essentially that mentorship was it wasn't for us it wasn't necessarily like an educational thing it was more like someone that has more experience than us that's on our boat that if we encounter a situation, we can get, jump on a call or a Zoom and talk through it and come out with the best resolution we possibly could have than if we were just on our own. 
Interesting. Yeah. And that, that's a, that's a good distinction. I mean, there's uh there's, you know, there's coaching and there's mentoring, like coaching is helping you work through certain things, giving you techniques to, you know, come up with things and mentoring is that, but it's also you're being mentored by someone who has done what you have, what you have done and can help you through difficult situations. I mean, the issue with multifamily or any deal is that every situation is going to be slightly different, right? So you yeah. had your, your mom to bounce ideas off the single family house stuff and, it yep. sounds like you needed someone to do something similar on the multifamily side. Yeah, but at least on the first couple of deals, they kind of like feel it out. It was more like our confidence and, and it was like a confidence thing too. And and yeah, and, and my coach was uh, Drew Whitson and he's just, he, he's a professor. So he kind of comes with that mentality and he's just really easy to talk to and, and intelligent and we could really get into the nitty gritty and, and really figure things out to the very detail. Yeah, that's amazing. So how long did it take you to do your first deal? Tell us a little bit about your first deal and how you got into it. Yeah, so so the first deal took us from when we started the mentorship in April. We closed in uh, September of 2020. So what that's about less than six months, five mm, months amazing, yeah. or so to do yeah. our first deal. But I had actually sold a duplex March 20 of 2020 that I 1031 into this deal. And as you know, during that time, they extended the selection and closing period. If if it landed between April 15th and July 15th, they got extended to July 15th. So I got lucky that my selection period got extended to uh, July 15th, but my deadline was still going to be like September 16th. So we closed like at least September 10th. So I had about six day window to actually close that deal. And then we were lucky because a lot of the funds were coming from ourselves, but that was another roadblock we encountered. It was challenge raising from people that we knew in Los Angeles to invest in Oklahoma, where it seemed very foreign to them. All right, let's talk about that, right? Uh, it's So you'd figure you're in LA, it's a pretty, quote, easy place to raise money. And you put some yeah. of your own money in, but then you struggle a little bit to raise money for that. Why do you think it was hard to raise money? I think it was also our first larger deal in in Oklahoma. So I think a lot of people wanted to see, because now on the second deal, some people that said no to us on the first said yes on the second one, because they're like, okay, we're beating projections by 30%. It's going well, or everything's working the way it's supposed to be working and better. So they're like, okay, now we feel confident that they could get it done. I, I think also we, we were just in the height of COVID. There was so much uncertainty that a lot of people are like, I just don't know right now. There's like, who knows what could happen? There's people dying all over the place. Like things are crazy, you know? Yeah, I remember. That. I mean, gosh, that was this is an August September time frame, right? July, August, September. Yeah. There was there was a resurgence in, in COVID, you know. Um, yeah. And people were like, "My gosh, what, 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 where's this going?" The world and is ending. Yeah. <laughs> the world was ending, and I'm just I'm just gonna <laughs> yeah. hoard cash right now. I'm not. Yeah. So so that that you know at the time also lenders kind of shut down a little bit. Bridge that lending too. Went, went away. And uh, reserves, it was, yeah, it was kind of a, a weird, uh, a weird, a weird time. So you somehow got it done, though. We got it done. We did get it done. Yeah. All right. So, so okay. So, so you got this this deal done. T tell us a little about the deal. Uh, yeah. So it's seventy one unit that we actually added a unit to, so it became a seventy two unit deal. There was a pool on the property, and there was an old pool room that we turned into a studio unit, which actually was the added bonus that we found like close to closing. So uh -huh. that was just a little bonus. 
our value add there was cutting expenses by 25% because they were spending all this marketing costs, too much on insurance. They had too much staffing. And so we cut those things because our manager has properties around the corner so we could kind of share resources. Um, and then we just cleaned up the outside, rebranded it, did new signage. We only put about 150,000 into the into the property and it's we're beating projections now by 30% and it's just it's doing really well. We bought it in a good spot and and honestly, I think we just got lucky that it wasn't highly marketed and I think COVID kind of had a lot of buyers on the sidelines and we, we got a good deal. Yeah, that's 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 amazing. So you you were able to take advantage of that. Um, and so you talked about uh, the effect of the law of the first deal. What what happened after that? Did you do a second deal after that or or yeah? Or so we're about to close the second deal now. What happened with this deal is it was a mom and pop seller, just difficult. So we negotiated probably with the guy for like three months, put it under contract. He had misrepresented the size of the units and wouldn't give us a discount for that by 25%, like significant. So he canceled and then we jumped back into it because now he was giving us a credit. We're getting a better rate from our bank and our manager is able, now has a property right next to it and we're able to do it with a little less staffing. So a combination of those three things kind of made it work. Hey, I want to tell you about our mentoring program because I'm just excited at what our students' results are. We have students routinely do their first deal because they're working with a full-time syndicator. And that mentor is helping them do their first deal faster. That first deal is a lot bigger than if they did it without a mentor. And they avoid some of the biggest mistakes that can simply make you want to quit out of the business. So if that's interesting to you, if you value mentorship, check out our mentoring programs at themichaelblanc.com forward slash mentor. You can schedule a call with us and see if mentoring is right for you. And uh, we look forward to having a conversation. Now, going from the first to second deal, you had some issues scaling or raising more capital. Talk about that. I mean, you it, it was tough to raise that money on the first deal. Um, what did you do about that? Yeah, so we joined your platform builder programs and... And I also, and this was part of the program is just setting up our systems. So with the ebook, so we could have the funnel there. So people come in, download that, eventually set up a call with us and kind of be deal ready. And then also through the platform, creating weekly content and having a CRM to keep track of all that and all the, all the people in our system. And then finding a big thing of the platform builders was just kind of finding one social medium that you could really put your most efforts on. And that was Twitter for me. And part of the reason why I went on Twitter is because another syndicator I know in LA has raised millions of dollars off, off Twitter and that he's, he's met investors that way. And now on this next deal out of the, I think 12 or 13 investors, I think about half of them came from my efforts on on Twitter and and the platform and being in my our email campaigns and all that. Yeah, okay. So there's let's let's there's a lot to unpack here. So yeah. I, I mean, fundamentally you were asking yourself the question, how do I raise more capital? So this is not an uncommon yeah. situation and sometimes you you run into in the first second deal, but certainly by the third deal when you've exhausted your personal network and you've raised some amount of money 
$500,000, whatever. And you're like, how do I go from 500 to 5 million, right? And yep. you look back on the level of effort it took you to raise the whatever 500,000 you did. And you're like, there's no way, you know, I, I had to speak, speak to 100 investors to raise that $500,000. There's no way I'm meeting with five, you know, with, with a thousand investors. And so you were asking the question, how do you find more investors? And the answer is online, right? Through this platform. And so what we did together is kind of we worked out your, your brand. We created a lead magnet where people can download the lead magnet. And there's some automations once they download that. Now you have a CRM to track all the stuff. And then people just schedule calls on your, on your calendar. So what happened is you set all this stuff up and you chose Twitter, which is amazing. And so yep. how does the mechanism work? So you're on Twitter. Let's talk about the finished product because there was a lot of work that obviously went into this thing. Uh, through the platform builder program, we did a bunch of stuff. You did a bunch of stuff, but yep. you know now that the mechanism is in place, kind of describe how it works. Yeah, so I think the platform builder gives you the tools, but just like working out, you have a trainer. You still have to show up and put the reps in, so that I guess the reps that that I put in is on Twitter. I post something of value for people every single day from what I'm learning. And I also, I put some personal stuff about my family and about like, I've dealt with like mental health issues. I've talked about that and people just resonate with, with that. So I think making yourself seem human, intelligent and, and know what you're, we're talking about and, and your real life experience where people can learn from you and, and see you as, I guess, a, a thought leader in in that particular realm of social media, it's very powerful and then every once in a while sprinkling in like a link to, we called it a tribe to join our tribe that eventually set up a, a call with us. You know, I have a couple people giving me a, their email a day now, a lot of them coming from Twitter. I'd say probably about half the people or more than half the people that I set up a call with come from there. Yeah, that's awesome. So, all right. So you, you have people schedule a call directly do they download your lead magnet or what is the call to action in other words how do you get them from the social media platform to scheduling a call with you i also have like on twitter you have your profile and you could have a small description and links in your description and i have the the ebook in my description so yeah they either download my ebook and go through the whole funnel and and uh, join the tribe and then set up a call with us. Or sometimes I'll just put the link directly to join my tribe. And a lot of people have been following me on Twitter for like one of the people that was one of our investors followed me on Twitter for a year before he pulled the trigger. Like these people, because I'm posting something every day, they, they like get to know me through what I'm putting out there that when when they finally get on a call with me, it's like it's like I'm talking to a friend. And that's interesting, but but you know that that only is because you are putting out content every single week, and you're putting out content on Twitter, and you're putting out posts, every right? Yeah. Every day, right? So so are you putting out video as well, uh, just posts? Um, I've put not videos, just posts. I do threads though. So basically, on Twitter, you 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 could do like a mini blog within a thread. You do a bunch of posts that do like a whole story and those do pretty well. Mm -hmm. So I, I try to do like one thread a week or try to, but it doesn't always work out that way. But, and I'm definitely, people also appreciate the blog posts because I try to make them unique and different and my own kind of thought process to things. So people could really get an inside look at how we think and how we look at things and what sets us apart from other people. So if, if you weren't putting out content like you are, you weren't posting like you are, what would be the impact on your ability to raise money? 
we probably would have raised half of what we we raised on this last deal. Right. Because the other half was just just word of mouth or just people I've known for a long time just being in real estate. But the other half were just, yeah, just every day, you know, it's a grind. It, it's not like, it's not fun all the time, but you just got to keep at it. And and I think about it, I dream about it. I'm like, okay, what else am I going to, what other topics, what 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 else could I put out there that could be a value? And, and, and that's one thing too, is like some days I just won't put something because I don't feel like what I'm putting out there is necessarily a value that I rather skip a day than put something that's just to put something up. I'm going to put something that's really good or I'm not going to put it up. So what does content do then for the business? Why is it so important that you put out content? It, it just gives potential investors or anyone looking at your information kind of an insight into your business and your thought process. And it's helped me like writing these blog posts has helped me really like actually think through everything and be that much more clear about what we're doing and why we're doing it and how we're doing it. So that when I actually have calls with people, like, and they ask me questions, I'm like, I've thoroughly thought through it. I've really like been in the weeds with it and, and I'm, I'm confident about it and they could see that, okay, this is a thoughtful, thorough person. Yeah. I, I mean, my observation is, and I see it in yours, is that the content that you post really builds trust with people. You said that once you get, they get on, you get on the phone with them, you feel like you're talking to a friend. Certainly they feel like they're talking to a friend because they already know you. They've yeah. been watching you for sometimes uh, you know, a year or even longer. Yeah. They'll talk about posts I put up and we'll talk about my posts. And then yeah. like, it's, yeah, it just gives us a common ground, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So how, how do you, so you sometimes, and I remember when I was, uh, when I first got starting with blogging for the bigger pockets, I had, you know, it was a, a weekly thing that, that I had to do. And sometimes you're just, you know, can't stop writing. And other times you're like, crap, what do I write about? Right. Like you're talking about here. How do you yeah. come up with things to talk about? A lot of it is just having conversations with people and they ask me a question that I feel like I don't have the greatest answer to. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, okay, I need to dig deeper into this and, and kind of figure this out or listening to other podcasts. Like I'll get ideas and a lot of, and, and like you said too, sometimes it is tough to write or you're just having writer's block. So what I try to do is kind of block off time where I could probably do a couple at a time at least. And then I have on Upwork, I have someone that helps me kind of edit it after I've kind of put it all out there, sort of help me clean up and kind of put some more structure to it. So it's a little more professional looking and it's been working well, but yeah, it's, it's getting tough to think of new stuff when I've thought of like 40 or 50 topics already. Yeah. You, you're saying that sometimes it's a little tedious and sometimes it isn't. Other times it's, it's enjoyable. What do you think you can do to make the content production more enjoyable? You think? I think if for some reason the topic that I'm talking about is a little more challenging, it's okay to go shorter too, if you need to. I think that's, that's one thing that's kind of helped me like instead of, okay, I need to do 800 words. It's like, no, I, 600 is, is pretty good too. Or maybe you get started and you're in the middle of it and you're just not feeling it and you just kind of put it aside and think of a new topic because maybe it's just not a good topic. And that's why it's so hard for you to really think it through. 
And one of the things I, I did as soon as I able is try to outsource as much as I possibly can. You talked about you know, editing. You're, at least you're keeping it simple. You're just doing blog and like Twitter posts. You're not doing, you know, uh, podcasts or video, which are just, no. you know, super time intensive. You're keeping it very simple. So that's number one. Yeah. And then I started outsourcing tedious things like, for example, posting it up on, on WordPress, for example, uh, or editing a video or editing a podcast. Like, you yeah. know, but of course you need income, you need revenue to be able to, to do that. That. Uh, talk about yep. the business case a little bit. Let's going back to the, the last deal you did, even the deal before that. How much money do you think you directly got from online medium? How many investors and roughly how much money was that? Probably around half a million dollars. So <laughs> that's amazing. And these are yeah, people I mean, you've never met before. You somehow discovered them on Twitter. They came to you, scheduled a call. And that's just, that's amazing. I mean, that is really amazing. Yeah, it's kind of crazy to think about it that way. Yeah, but like we were talking about, if they've been following me for a long time and seen all my content for a long time, they feel like they know me where it, it doesn't feel random anymore, even though at one point it was. Yeah, so I mean, so what is your advice to other syndicators, right? They've maybe raised a couple hundred thousand dollars and they're kind of, you know, they're, they feel like they're tapped out. What do you advise that they should think about doing? Just like we were talking about putting out a weekly blog or a weekly video or some kind of content on a weekly basis and finding one social media channel where you focus all your energies at, where you're posting something every day and you give it your personal touch too, that people know that you're a human being and that you're trustworthy and that you're 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 being thoughtful and thorough and and kind of being transparent too, like even maybe talking about some of the failures you've had or some of the things that haven't gone so well, because, you know, we're not perfect. We, we make mistakes. We, things don't go perfectly to plan all, all the time. And if you put it out there, they, they, they resonate with that. I mean, one of the things I hear a lot and, and you've gone through this process is there's, you know, there's the actual technical aspect of setting up the platform, the lead magnet, then the automations, and you can do that. In fact, we do that for you. But yeah. without producing content on a regular basis, it's just going to die a slow death. We talked about it earlier. How did you get yourself? Why did you understand that producing content was so important? Like, you just did you just buy what you know why did you decide to commit to that because a lot of syndicators struggle with that last piece is they go it's too much work i don't know what to write about it's not important it doesn't make a difference and we of course know better but wh why did you overcome kind of that mindset a little bit i think you guys drilled it in pretty well for us in, <laughs> right. in the program that's number 1 and number 2 i just you know, I, I'd struggled on that first raise and I knew something significant had to change and that was consistent. And when I have my eye on, on the goal, like I'm going to do everything it takes to get there. And that's part of it. And I think a lot of people aren't consistent and they have to, that's something that maybe number one, you have to deal with, okay, why am I not consistent in my everyday things that I do in my life? And then, and then work on that. And then you could kind of work on the other stuff that com comes with that, you know? Yeah. So what's, what's next for you with regards to how, where do you think you can take this thing? And like, uh, first of all, the, your online activity, like what do you plan on doing online with regards to continuing the online activity? And then where do you think you can take your capital raise if you follow that plan? That's something I've been thinking about. We've kind of uh, messed around with doing some ads like Google AdWords, and I've done actually some 
Twitter ad stuff that I think I'm going to do a little bit more of because the Twitter ads has been pretty effective. I've got, I've gotten a lot of people sign up. They hadn't really like turned into call. So I think tweaking some, doing some ad stuff and, and tweaking, tweaking that, but hopefully in the next year or so we could raise another three, $4 million. That, that would be my goal. So you're going to, you're going to stick with Twitter and maybe, yeah. uh, and maybe expand it with some Twitter ads. I, yeah, Twitter ads. Um, I do LinkedIn too. Just I put our posts up there once a week, and then I kind of like, and then we have a Facebook. And but I don't. I, maybe I need to be a little more active on some of the other social medias now that I've gotten kind of settled on the Twitter thing and just keeping those things updated. But yeah, just keeping at it and checking in with people. I even call investors that I haven't even talked to in a while. I'll just be like. For no reason, I'll call a handful of them and just see how they're doing and what they're up to, and and that's helpful. Yeah, I love I love that. That's the way you scale you scale the business, and and you continue this activity. And you kind of see how this is resulting in in more capital capital raise. So yep. love that man. You just made my point about you know content. It's tough. It's tough when you're starting out. You just don't understand why I go through all the time and expense and whatever to produce content, and then you see it. And you see it when people show yep. up on your, on your calendar, and that really is the the magic of it. So yeah, another another little trick that I do is I just try to Google my name like once a month just to see what's popping up. And ever since I've been putting out more content, like more of me has been coming up and at the top. Or like before, if I just typed in because our company name is JB Two Investments, and now if I just type in JB Two Investments, we're like number two or three to come up, just JB Two. When before that wouldn't have been the case. So Google is is seeing whatever it's seen and and ranking us higher than than we did before. Yeah, this is awesome stuff, Jonathan. And uh, we'll see you at Dealmaker Live here, and uh, literally in a few days. That's going to be awesome. Look forward to that. How can people connect with you, Jonathan? Yeah, Twitter at JB2 Investments or look up my name, Jonathan Barr, or go to my website, jb2investments.com or download my ebook. It's just our website forward slash lower. And it's about the tax incentives of real estate, 1031 exchanges, accelerated depreciation and investing with retirement money. Love it. Awesome. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks. All right, definitely check out Jonathan Barr on Twitter. JB2 is his company. Check out and see what he's doing on Twitter and engage with him. Also, if you're interested and new to investing in this asset class, we have also a great uh, special report that compares the stock market to real estate investing. That's at themichaelblank.com forward slash report. And it kind of introduces you to this brand new asset class of multifamily. So check that out as well. But also, if you're an active syndicator and you're kind of maybe struggling with raising capital, uh, you don't know how to really do it at scale, and you want to be able to do it effortlessly while people are scheduling you know, calls with you as you're sleeping. All right? If you answer any questions about that, then I have something for you, which is our Platform Builder program. We only do this uh, three times a year, and we're opening it up right now. So if you're interested in, in super scaling your capital raising business with an online thought leadership platform, then we have a training that will show you how to do that. And it's at platformbuilders.com forward slash register. That's platformbuilders.com forward slash register to sign up for that training. So hope to see you guys there. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Always thinking ahead a little bit, being proactive with scaling your syndication business and uh, catch you guys next episode.